Hey, everybody. Just to let you know, this podcast may contain some adult or possibly offensive language. No nudity, though. (laughs) Unless you're thinking about naked people. Do you plan to return to an art museum or do you just move forward as a freelance creative? Friday was my last day. It's Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Big question. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Did my dad plant you? What's up, everybody? This is Stretch Armstrong. My name is Bobito Garcia. We are together the hosts of What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. And today we're going to be sitting with Kimberly Drew. No doubt. She is an activist. She is a writer. She is a curator. She recently left the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that institution. I've I've heard of the Met. (laughs) You grew up right down the block, right? Pretty close. Stone's throw. Yeah. At the Met, she was in charge of all their social media platforms and did a lot of really dynamic things on their platforms to try to diversify the audience. Well, I wouldn't even say try. She did. She's, she did it. She tried and succeeded. Yeah. And she also has Black Contemporary Art blog on Tumblr, which I think is the single thing that's really catapulted her beyond her, her individual Instagram and Twitter handles. Uh, she's, she's got an immense following. And I tell you, like I didn't even know who she was prior to NPR, our production crew <laughs> Uh, pitching the idea of interviewing her. And since, I feel like a big dummy. Because <laughs> like every progressive person I know in this city is like, oh my God, particularly women are like, I'm inspired by Kimberly Drew. I follow her. And we now do too. Please stick around. Coming right up is Kimberly Drew. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars in used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Some things were meant for each other. Fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face. And now... What's good with Stretch and Bobito and Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to ours, search for What's Good with Stretch and Bobito, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now and now. We are back in the studio with Kimberly Chu. Welcome to What's Good. Thank you. <laughs> you kick around? Oh my God, I wish. You wish you could? I you wish can. I could. I wish I could. It would make me so much cooler. But I have no skills. You can you can borrow someone else's rhymes. I could. Yeah. It's very popular these days. Well, you, you walked in with headphones on. What, I did. What's, what's playing? There's this amazing... Spotify playlist. Stretch and Bobito. Just, I, I know, I know, I know. Just another hint, Spotify hint. plug before you guys do the ads. Um, they have a playlist called Black Girl Magic, which sounds like trash, but it's actually amazing. Word. And there's an artist, Teresa Chromati, who did the cover artwork for it. So like end to end, it's really thoughtful. It's a mix of spoken word and everyone from like City Girls to Aretha Franklin. So that's what I've been kind of had on heavy rotation. So let's take it back Mm -hmm. to your first encounters with art. Mm -hmm. Does this come from home, family life, parents? 
Yeah. So I grew up in Jersey, in Orange, New Jersey, um, which is 15 minutes outside of Newark, New Jersey. And in the 70s, the Black Arts Movement was there. And so in many ways, I feel like the soil was ripe with art from before I came around and came into being. Um, my aunt is an artist and worked with the city doing arts programming. And even in her office when I was growing up, she had posters from galleries in Newark. But it took me until I got to college to really realize that it was a career path that I wanted to take. But I feel very fortunate that in my family, art and creativity were always important. Like I didn't have the parents who were like, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. They were like, you need to get in this car because we're going to a museum. Um, and that very much kind of was the framework. Yeah. So would that mean you'd, you'd take trips to, to New York City? Yeah. As a kid? yeah. Yeah. And everything from, you know, like Liberty Science Center up to the Met, it was really um, important for, I think, especially on my dad's side of the family, him and his sisters were really invested in us learning in many different forms and going to institutions of learning as much as possible. Um, my dad, um, he's more of a music guy, so he's going to freak out when he hears this. I didn't even tell him I was coming in. Um, but he's like, he was like a big cassette dude and like, you know, has his, like he's handing me down his ticket from when he saw Michael Jackson. And so <laughs> he grew, he he steeped me in this very supreme kind of respect of culture and cultural objects. Mm -hmm. And my mother is very much a collector of objects as well. And so for them, the reverence is something that I feel like I inherited very much, but they weren't like, oh my God, let's look at this Warhol. Like, I took my mom to the Whitney Museum and was trying to show her all these artists I thought she knew, and she didn't. And it was the most incredible process because it really helped me realize, like, okay, I've been taught that these people are important, but if they're not important to my mom, how can I think about, like, what value really means? Um, and how can I also use that as a tool for, for bridging, you know, that gap? So what was the epiphany for you? Now this is something that completely makes sense to me and, and I'd like to sink my teeth into. Yeah. There's a couple of different experiences um, that I can point to. Um, going to the Brooklyn Museum, and at the time, they had this installation of works by Kehinde Wiley that were kind of set up in like a chapel-like formation. And that was, for me, the moment where I realized that there was, especially because also it's like I'm a digital kid. Like I've been, I, I, we got our first computer in 96. I was five. Mm -hmm. So my entire life has been framed around the internet and sharing. And I think that that Kehinde Wiley experience was one of the first ones where I thought, okay, I want to be able to share this experience with other people because I was so impacted. Um, and, and seeing a black artist and seeing representation of black figures, especially in the way that he paints and in the way that it was hung, was this aha moment um, for me in terms of kind of a life path. Because when I was in college, I didn't think I was going to study art. I was studying math and I was studying, studying engineering because I thought I wanted to be a civil engineer. And it wasn't until I went from civil engineering to architecture because it allowed for a little bit more private study. Our architecture took me to art history. And so that was this like moment. But for all intents and purposes, it sounds ridiculous because when I did go home to visit, I was like, I'm going to study art. My aunt was like, duh. You know, like, of course you are. We've been like, you know, needing this for, you know, needing this into you your entire life. But I thought I was coming back with some new shit. Like, I thought I was like reinventing the wheel. And I was like, it's so risque. Like, you guys are not ready. I finally figured out my life path. And my aunt Donna was just like, sure. That's interesting that you describe that that experience at, at the Kehinde Wiley show because it sounds like you had this very visceral reaction, which I think is something that that we all tend to get from music and much earlier in our lives, right? It's so much more we're just moved by music so so easily, and I'm just wondering if if prior to that, if you had already had that kind of that relationship with music prior to to uh, the visual arts. Yeah, I mean, that's something I'm super passionate about is f figuring out the math to make art more like music. 
um, because I think if we played any song in here, I think we could say I don't like it. But if someone were to put up a Da Vinci or like that Da Vinci that sold for all that money, people wouldn't feel comfortable making commentary on it or liking it or disliking it, which is why I, I love bringing my mom to this Warhol moment. And she's like, I don't know what the fuck that is. You know, where it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, like we all have yeah. our own right to what we value, what we hold dear. Like I took her through the Met and she saw a painting of Jesus and she's like, I know him, you know? And it's like <laughs> that that kind of connection is incredibly more valuable than her just liking Warhol because he's a famous dude, you know? Um, and so I, I'm always trying to figure out a way to make art, it's most democratic, um, but it's it's a hard work. It's a really hard work. You went to Smith College, a, a all women's school mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious if your out of class experience had any influence on on your career path. Yeah, for sure. How it influenced your career path. Yeah, what's dope about um, going to Smith and being in Northampton, which is two hours outside of Boston, is that when people, especially from a musical perspective, when people have Boston gigs, they also come out. So I remember like seeing, and this is because I I graduated from college in 2012, so these are not like long ago. Um, (laughs) I was like going to go on my nostalgia tip, but I was like, let me preface it with the fact that (laughs) I am 28. Um, But I just remember like finishing papers to go see Wale when he was like just first really blowing up and how important and significant that was. And he was terrible live. But I was so stoked to be able to see him. And um, Janelle Monae came to visit our campus. Um, So it it was the small college town, but it still had a connection to culture. We had a museum on on campus. I could be home in three hours. Um, and so those things really deeply shaped me, especially as a person who works in culture. I'd never felt super out of the loop. Um, and additionally, a lot of graduates from Smith College are in the art world, kind of the New York art world. And so there was very much kind of a line to that. And so it felt like you were, as you were studying art, it felt like a professionalized kind of track as opposed to some other campuses where it's this, you know, it can be very hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're still at Smith but you land an internship for Thelma Golden, uh, the curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which represents art by people of African descent. What did it provide you, that experience was also uh, being under someone like her, like Thelma? Yeah, Yeah. so Thelma is the director of the museum and chief curator, and she also went to Smith. So my first kind of intern day, yeah, where (laughs) I was feeling myself. Like I sat in a meeting next to her and we all went around and people were saying where they were in school and what they were studying. And she was like, I went to Smith and I studied African-American studies and art history. And then I was like, I go to Smith and I study (laughs) African-American studies and art history. You know, so she is a person that I always wanted to be like. um, As soon as I knew that she existed, and I think that happens for a lot of us in the art world. And because she's just, she's a titan among us. Um, And so when I was an intern in that office, it was a real crash course into what it meant to show up for artists. Um, I think she's a person that I I, I always hope people ask better questions because she's just been around through so many different things. Um, But being in her office and being able to have, you know, I organized her library at one point and like there's this amazing set of interviews and like being able to read her over time like there's this great interview magazine from like the early 2000s destiny child on the cover and she's in that 
you know and so it's it's interesting that someone is like her legacy almost hides in plain sight and hmm. i think in this moment we are coming into contact with art and black artists in a really um, powerful way that's i think bigger and broader than it's been in the past um, but it's amazing to look at someone like thelma or larry stokes sims or deborah willis or sarah lewis who have been doing this work for some time um, but i would say that thelma's probably got the most pop culture appeal which is cool while you were there did you like automatically sense a, a widening of your knowledge of emerging and established black artists as well as just art period yeah when i got there i immediately realized i didn't know anything and in my first week there i learned about uh trenton doyle hancock who's an artist based out of houston who was amazing um kind of afro surrealist artist and i learned about basquiat i was like how the fuck didn't i know who this person was <laughs> like i literally didn't know you know um and it's kind of incredible that there are many people who can go through, I think less and less now, hopefully, but there's a possibility to have taken our history classes and not learn about these super significant figures. Because um, also our history as a discourse isn't taught that way. Like it's not built around celebrity necessarily. It's very much built through time or through themes. Um, and it was amazing to come into an institution where I could learn the names really intentionally. Um, and so that first summer, I went, my knowledge of black artists went from basically like zero to 100. So the idea of a black museum, do you think that's the ideal or is the ideal to, to get more black artists into the mainstream institutional fold? Or both? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the big picture goal is that artists have artists and arts professionals have the resources to be as successful as they want to be. I think that when I think about that, I think about Tons of different black art organizations, everything from like CAM in LA, Project Row Houses in Houston, or Art and Practice in LA. There's many different modalities for what an arts institution looks like. And so I, I think more about the shape of an art institution, much less than um, things that happen thematically sometimes, because I think for some artists, a more community-based arts institution lends better to their practice. In terms of priorities, uh, when I look at the field, what's most important is that there's resources. And unfortunately, some of the Black institutions have less resources than others. What would you change about museums' culture to make it more inviting and less like, ah, oh, nah, that's for the, you know, that's for the Fifth Avenue crew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I, I think it's a mix of things, right? Um, because I think a lot of the change that I'm I'm particularly obsessed with right now is especially along the lines of accessibility in terms of um, making sure that people of all levels of ability feel like they can come into a museum. Um, so that's not just socioeconomic, that's not just racial, that's um, physical ability as well. Mm. Um, and so I think it's one thing is a marketing issue. Um, and I'm also like an ex-marketing professional as of Friday. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there's a way that museums don't have the tools for talking about themselves really well. A lot of press releases are like, we're the first and the best. And it's like, no one cares. You know, like, what do you have and how do I get there? Just looking at the lack of information for real people, um, for a curious audience, um, I don't think that there's always that extension in a way that um, is necessary. An invitation, like open houses make a world of difference. Like, the last week I was at the Met, we had an open house for conservators, and they were showing us the things that they were bring, basically bringing back to life. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, like, what it would have been like my friend's um, teenage nephew came by to visit, and I was like, I wish I could have brought him to this because it would have blown his mind, and maybe he would grow up to be a conservator. Have you had any specific interactions with people that you may know that aren't a part of that 
about this very issue and how maybe you have turned someone on to something in a museum that made them realize, oh, there's there's a whole world here that I can dive into that I've been deprived of. Yeah, it's what I try to do all the time. Like one thing that's really fun about the art world is you usually get a plus one to most stuff. And so I'm always like <laughs> begging somebody to come to some opening with me or some dinner with me or some fair. Um, or I was at Expo Chicago, which is Chicago's art fair and was leaving and ran into this college student and was like, I follow you on Instagram. Me and my friends are trying to get in. And I just gave her my VIP card. Nice. I'm like, love it. take it, run yeah. with it. Like, I think you'll find extreme value in this. Um, and so I'm always trying to create as many invitations as possible for people. Um, but I think the language thing is one that I, I'm always kind of curious about because it is kind of, it's irritating as hell, you know, because uh, I love museums, you know, I love them and I feel protective over them and I want them to do better, right? And so the language thing is always one that I'm always, I'm constantly returning to where people, it's like, I don't want anyone to feel like they're not intelligent enough to learn. What is that? You know, like, how is that possible? Um, it, it's really about curiosity much more than what you know when you're going in. So I guess that's a good segue into your highly trafficked Tumblr blog, Black Contemporary Art. Mm -hmm. um, I was just going to start talking about it, and I was like, I feel like there's probably a question. Oh, thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thanks for trying to make us look good. Appreciate that. Yeah, so you started that when you were how old? I was, uh, it was right after my internship at the studio museum. Ah, so that was like hand in hand with this new kind of excitement about. Yeah. About, so you started the blog and you're still at Smith. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I was lucky because I got war I got switched from doing cafeteria work study <laughs> to work study in the student government office. And Sharon Fagan, who was my supervisor at the time, she knows it now, but she changed my life with when hiring me because it gave me an opportunity to be at a desk and I started it in that office at that job. Yeah. On and your I, lunch break, of course. No, during <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> we had our discontent. Um, but yeah, I was. I mean, I was like dispatching vans for students who would borrow them to do. You know, like it wasn't like you know arduous work. I wasn't doing brain surgery, so yeah. I started working on it. Um, just posting artworks, their title, n the person who made it, and the year they were made. Because when I started the blog, I didn't think that there was an art historical rhetoric that supported Black artists. Um, because I hadn't learned any black, I mean, I hadn't learned of any scholars who wrote about black art. So I just didn't think there were any like a dumbass 20 year old. And so I created as kind of a, what I like to call a primary source or um, just a primary stop for people. So if you see something you like, you can learn more, right? I, w I didn't want to tell anybody what to think about them. Um, and so I, I've been doing that for the last few years. Were the comments open? Are the no comments? comments. No. No comments, no writing, <laughs> which was awesome and also funny because I have friends who are in kind of like philanthropy and grant making world. And they're like, if you literally wrote anything, I could give you so much money. <laughs> um, but it was like, I don't want. And after after years of doing that, I was like, I think that was the, the biggest success of it. It wasn't that it wasn't the artworks because you could find those anywhere. It was that people didn't feel like they had to be told how to look at them. You know, I like the idea that, you know, you could go on the Tumblr app and open and learn something because uh, that's what Tumblr was for me before I started the blog. You land the social media manager position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. What's your immediate and long-term goal once you land foot there? Because you already have your own individual goals, yeah. clearly. Yeah, for sure. I think what's dope about the Met is that it's an encyclopedic collection. And so one of the things that I came in from the gate really strategic about was trying to push out more types of art from more cultures, um, but trying to really 
show the breadth of the collection and highlight especially as well the different voices from th- throughout the museum. Um, in my first year, we also tried to to utilize the platforms to tell more stories from within the museum because I grew up around art but didn't know it was a career path was because I didn't know about different jobs. Like I knew curators existed vaguely, but I didn't know about you could be an art lawyer. I didn't know about conservators. I didn't know about the role of museum guards. I didn't know about any of that stuff just to show kind of uh, just a, a multiplicity because I think a lot of times people s- just think of it as this huge block of cement. I imagined you got to know the museum intimately well yeah. in terms of all the spaces and the nooks and crannies. And yeah. What's your favorite part of the Met? Do you have a favorite room, favorite gallery? Yeah. Uh, well, my favorite department's the arms and armor department, hands down. Um, because I just love that the labels have the weight of the objects. It's so strange. Um, I don't think that there's other galleries that have that. And then additionally, it's one of the instances in the museum where multiple world cultures are in the same room. And I love that. I love that you can walk from like samurai swords to like pearled Tiffany pistol. I love the steps. I always took the steps as a challenge in terms of thinking about accessibility. It's like what happens when your institution is known by its steps? How can you inform people about other points of entry how how many points of entry can you make and then there's the people i mean i love the people it's about the people you just left the met yeah um on twitter you wrote it's also a great time to share that my outgoing pay is still less than that of the white man who previously held my role museums you got to do better i just have to say i loved working at the met but honey being a woman a black woman in museums is just as exhausting as it looks so other than being paid less, which isn't right. Um, What was exhausting about it? From a human perspective, we have 7 million visitors a year. And so just moving through the galleries on a day-to-day is a lot. I spent a lot of time away from my desk, very strategically, especially because I was saying I was 25 when I got there. And I think I had all of these thoughts about what it meant to be a young person managing a new medium. And so I wanted to spend as much face-to-face time with people as possible. I wanted them to hear my voice. I wanted them to hear the passion that I have for the work that I was doing because I felt like that's the only way I'm going to get them to listen. Um, But I do think that moving through that institution and like all of the energies of people was a lot. And even like it being a space where it's super popular and really populated and some mornings I would walk in and there's like police outside it's like that's I mean as a black woman that's just not it doesn't soothe you your handle your social media handle is museum mammy Mm -hmm. a term that in certain eras was derogatory Mm -hmm. how did you come up with that name and what was what were people's reaction when you made it public yeah I did a takeover for Prada and trying to like talk to an Italian audience about what the word mammy meant. I was like, (laughs) Um, so I, when I was in school at the time, my Twitter handle was mod mommy or mod mammy, excuse me. Um, Some people say museum mommy. Um, So (laughs) the mod came from Gwendolyn Book's book, Mod Martha, which is a book that I actually stole from my bookstore when I was in school because <laughs> I had no money, but I needed to read it for a class. And I always loved that book because it was about, it was a very interior experience of a black woman's life. Um, so I loved Maud, and then I always have loved the phonetics of the word mammy and what it meant and what it stood for um, because I've always seen the mammy figure as deeply, deeply powerful. For me, I've always thought about the mammy figure as one of the superheroes within the canon of how we understand black women um and i and i always see it with this like supreme respect um 
and so I, I I chose that name because I always think of a mammy figure as a person of care and a person of a particular excellence um, and a person who is in many ways within an institution um, and and in some ways a leader of an institution and so that's why I chose the name. Can you explain yeah. what I think um, much of our audience actually won't know the history of the word mammy? Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. You could get into that a little bit. That'd yeah. be helpful. Yeah. So mammy is a term that for what I know originated antebellum South and was a word to describe a black woman in the domestic space, um, in usually a woman who was enslaved. And it also was a character that appeared in a lot of racist propaganda um, in that time period. Yeah, Art, particularly in the last 15 years, has become more of a commodity than it than it ever has. I mean, sure, art and money have always been intertwined, but particularly in the last 15 years, is a lot of money. What gets deemed as blue chip that ends up on the walls of institutions is is intertwined with with money, and the people that have the money often control that uh, that narrative. Uh, I'm just curious if, if this is something that that you think about, and 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 is it important to you that 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 dynamic changes? Everyone thinks about it, and anyone who says they're not is lying. Um, it's just the reality of creative industries, you know. Um, in art, it just looks very different than other industries. Like fashion needs big money, food needs big money, um, this needs big money. Um, so it, it is definitely a reality of the industry. In terms of the commodification of it, it's something that I'm always, I don't know, it's, I don't work in an auction house. I think if I worked closer to like the bigger monies, I would have a more informed opinion about it. Um, But for me, I think more about what does it mean to have a really good relationship between a collector and an artist? Um, because I think some of those relationships can be really generative and and um, and beautiful. I think about a collector like Pamela Joyner, who has an incredible collection of, of black abstractionists and also runs an artist residency. Um, so she's equal parts doing, you know, the owning, but also providing resources to artists. And so, or even like I got to interview Tina Knowles and like, she has an amazing collection of work and has a lot of artists that she loves and does a lot of philanthropy. Um, I think for me, I'm more more kind of focused on what, the good money in art is, which is just optimistic and and maybe ignorant to some. But for me, that's where my mental energy goes because like taking down Sotheby's or Christie's is like, that's that's not, (laughs) that's not where I'm putting my energy. I'm sure that some people are and I support them in that. (laughs) Um, But for me, I'm like, okay, how can we highlight the history, especially for for black artists really specifically, what is it meant for us to have support and what does that look like and who does that coming from like the Harlem Renaissance it's like there were patrons in that era who who helped support that work um, we don't have to um, have a totally antagonistic relationship to that truth yeah we're so um uh, former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama have amazing portraits by Kahindi Wale and Amy Sherald uh, they were the first African-American artists to paint official portraits in, their, in the National Portrait Gallery in D.C. When it first went up, there was, it, it was, there was much buzz heralding this moment. How did it impact you and, and where do you see its importance? Yeah, I haven't been yet, which is sad. I think that especially Amy as an artist is 
Amy painted my portrait before she painted Michelle. <laughs> um, or? Just kidding. I'll never be that important. But she did. Honestly, she did. I was talking to my roommate about it this morning. She came to my apartment or? and um, shot me for a portrait. Where's that? Where's that portrait right now? I think it's in the uh, National Museum of Women. So it's also in D.C. So. Nice. Um, but yeah, Amy is a person who I, I've had interact. I mean, Kehinde as well. Um, they're just two incredible artists who who are givers and and. Amy's like one of the most resilient humans ever. Um, and so I think them choosing, because there's so many artists they could have chosen. I think those them choosing those two was incredibly smart and powerful choices. I can't wait to see them. Who are your favorite artists that are like no one knows about? People I'm genuinely excited about. It, it runs the whole gamut. Um, I really love um, this artist that I met in Chicago, and it's totally biased because we're from the same place. But Bisa Butler is amazing um, artist who works within the context of like portraiture and fabric, and makes these really beautiful um, portraits that are uh, kind of knit. And I just got a work of hers, a print of hers, um, in support of an organization called Groundswell. They just did a benefit, and Groundswell brings art into um, schools in New York City. Um, shout out to them. They're amazing. But I, I, I got one of her works at their recent auction. Um, but Bisa is a person who I don't think a lot of people know yet, but she's an artist that I'm surely excited about. For a little while now, you've been working on a project with New York Times writer Jenna Wortham called Black Futures. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, Jenna was just texting me about it. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that the book's intention is to give a look at black cultural production over the last five or six years, kind of when social media really took off and became a part of our kind of day-to-day life. Um, And thinking about what would happen if Twitter closed tomorrow or if Facebook closed tomorrow and where that ephemera would go. And so we're trying to take things that happen, kind of some, some things that happen in the digital sphere and put them into a more concrete kind of analog format in the interest of preservation because very many pieces of black culture have faced a particular erasure. And so what what responsibility can we take on to retain these stories? Um, and the book in a book format feels like the best for us. Do you plan to return to an art museum or do you just move forward as a freelance creative? Friday was my last day. It's Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Big question. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Did my dad plant you? Um, So for right now, for right now, um, it's all all seems ahead to finishing the book, um, which feels like a great privilege just to be able to zero in on that um, and execute things on a to-do list that's about three years old now. so that for me is the area. And I think for myself too, it's like I I feel better writing as a writer than writing as a social media manager at this stage. And luckily the ends are meeting. So for me moving forward, it's like, okay, how do I really add author to that roster of names? All right. Well, I, I say we take a quick break. And when we come back, it might be your most favorite part of this entire interview. Most favorite. Most favorite. Most favorite. Favorite? Yeah, I don't think you'd be most favorite. Most favorite. <laughs> <laughs> the following message comes from our sponsor, Capital One. Would you know if someone applied for credit using your social security number? If not, listen to Joe Whitchurch, head of the CreditWise app, talk about the new SSN tracker his team recently released. 
while identity fraud is something everyone needs to be worried about, we want to make it easy and seamless for them to become aware of anybody attempting to use their identity without their knowledge or permission. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. Hey, everyone. If you enjoy this show, I think you'll really dig The Nod. It's a podcast that tells stories from black culture that you won't hear anywhere else. They've investigated Beyonce's alleged ties to the Illuminati, <laughs> tracked down crime mob for an oral history of the classic Nuck If You Buck, and uncovered the secret ties between grape drink and black history. Trust me, there's something on The Nod for everyone. The hosts, Brittany and Eric, talk to celebrities about the things you'd never expect. They got Yara Shahidi to talk about what it's like to wear a do-rag on TV. They asked Michael K. Williams how we turn the tide of youth incarceration. And they got RZA to reveal the links between kung fu movies and the civil rights movement. Subscribe now to The Nod wherever you listen to podcasts or go to gimletmedia.com slash The Nod. The Nod, a podcast from Blackness's biggest fans. And we're back. Oh, it's the sound of the drums, which means... It's time for the impression session. To set you up, yes. we're going to play you two songs, one song each, and basically you just react whatever the song makes you feel or makes you think. Mm-hmm. Cool? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> I'm ready. All right, she's ready. All right, drop it. Get funky if you think this pathetic dope addicts have to be abused. It's the same what a thing to be a prostitute. Life is given to us just to do the right thing. Instead of that, we came a whole wall with big dope feet. Makes you feel real bad every time I see another bone over brother sleeping on the street. In the corner, in the morning, every night and day. It's a pity, so many people try to act gay. Everybody's turning crazy, so you better believe to do the right things. All soon you'll see. Life ain't no more joke. That is K-Rob and Ram Z, Beat Bop, 1983, came out on Tartown Records and then was licensed by Profile Records. Take it away, Kimberly. Well, <laughs> it makes me think of this new writer named Donovan Ramsey, Donovan X. Ramsey, who is working on a book called When Crack Was King. And that's what that song made me think of. Um, and he actually has this really beautiful research Instagram that he's been building called At When Crack Was King. Um, and so I feel like I've heard that song because it's something that he shared, but I might just be making that up. Um, but he's a person who has been articulating the epidemic through culture um, actively as a part of his research strategy for the book he's building. Well, so that record was uh, produced and put out by Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, he and, and Ram LZ, um, they were they were friends, but they kind of had a feud. Of course, uh, Jean-Michel was, you know, a darling of the art world, and mm. Ram LZ uh, was much more... Renegade uh, graph writer. Just yeah. outsider. Yeah. Subway. Just a bugged yeah. out dude. Yeah. Um, I, so they were friends, but they also had sort of a competition, and um, they decided that they were going to go to the studio and actually <laughs> battle it out and make a record. Um, Ramel Z uh, told uh, Jean-Michel that he could rap better, paint better, DJ better, do everything better. So, the, so they said, fine, we're going to settle like this the, in the, the studio. hip-hop Olympics Oh my god! Because Jean-Michel was, was a DJ. Yeah. Um, he, he was always playing records, and he actually DJed at Aria. Um, and uh, the club area, yeah, yeah. really. I Excuse me, the club, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so they went into the studio, and um, and somehow K Rob, who was 15 years old, he came in, and they decided that Jean Michel had no business rapping on a record because it was trash. <laughs> um, 
So it ended up being K-Rob and Ram LZ rhyming. Okay. The album cover is uh, pretty iconic, at least in terms of, of vinyl collectors. It's There were only 500 copies pressed of it, and in some ways it's become um, a, a collectible work of art. It's the most expensive hip-hop single. It's been resold for five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000. Anyway, but I'm, I'm glad you didn't know what it was. Not at all. Right on. All right. <laughs> so we're going to play another song, and it's my selection. The skies could fall, not even if my boss should call. The world seems so very small, cause nothing even matters at all. See, nothing even matters. See, nothing even matters at all. Nothing even matters. Nothing even matters at all. Young up and get from ten feet tall. Without it, I go through I have the sense that you know that record. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Lauren Hill, D'Angelo, uh, yes. Nothing Even Matters. Yes. I selected it for you because she is from the same area that you came from. So yes. I'm imagining you might remember where you were and when you first heard that song, or do you have any uh, memories of... of being uh, an appreciator of, of her music or maybe a pride because she was local? Or... Yeah. Um, it's funny because Jersey gets a lot of shit, but I always am like, Lauren Hill, Cicely Tyson, Whitney Houston, <laughs> Queen Latifah. Like, that was always my, like, constant nice. refrain when I was in high school. Was Red like, Man. Right, in Red Man, I mean... Artifacts. Best, but also best MTV Cribs of all time. I used to see him <laughs> all the time, like, in the park in Newark. Um but yeah, Lauren Hill holds a special place in every Jersey girl's heart. Like that's just the rules. Um, <laughs> that's how it's broken down. But and I've been very fortunate to see her perform three or four times. Recent or back in the day? Um, I just saw her in September, um, and before that, I saw her two years ago. She did. She performed at Kahinde Wiley's Fish Fry in Miami. So Kahinde Wiley does a, sh- a party at the end of Art Basel. Um, for everyone who's been working all week and it's a really big fiesta and I was going to I I what I had never been invited I wasn't cool enough and then this was the year I was finally cool enough <laughs> and I changed my little like spirit airlines flight so I could stay and I was like if she doesn't show I'm gonna be so mad be so angry and then she did it she was on time she did the Afrobeat flex it was so good it was really really cosmic experience but yeah Lauren Hill all day. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, um, Kim, it's, it's been wonderful and educational building with you because I, I we call that edutainment. Yeah, edutainment. honestly, I, you mentioned the misedutainment. At least Gretchen Bobito. <laughs> 10, 15 uh, like programs and people have no idea who they are. <laughs> but you Schooling. guys should really look into Groundswell. You guys should go speak to those kids. Okay. That's my plug. Kimberly Drew, everyone. Thank you. Yay, thank you. (laughs) 
That is our show. This podcast was produced by Michelle Lands, edited by Alexander McCall, Jordana Hochman, and Nigeri Eaton. And our executive producer is Abby O'Neill. If you like the show, you can hear more at NPR.org. And please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. That's how we know you are listening. And if you want to follow us, you can do so on Instagram at Stretch and Bobito and Twitter at Stretch and Bob. Peace. Peace.